Well, if you wouldn't mind, we're uh, working through the book of Acts, and we're in uh, Acts chapter 26, if you wouldn't mind turning your Bibles there this uh, morning. Well, every uh, week as we're working through this uh, book of Acts, there's a little bit of uh, pressure uh, slash adventure in identifying what the big idea or theme is. Typically in other sections of scripture, there's kind of a specific big idea or theme in the section that you're uh, working through. Well, the book of Acts is just an account of the early church. So in other words, a history of kind of how things played out for the church, kind of right out of the gates, if you will. And so every week there's a little bit of uh, liberty or freedom to identify maybe some big ideas uh, in that section of history. Well, this week as I was working through it, I was like, man, the word that kept coming to mind as I think about Paul during this season of his life is the word moxie. I don't know if you've ever heard or used that word in a sentence, but the word moxie, maybe you've heard it said before, like, um, in fact, say it to your neighbor right now. It's just a good word, moxie. That's one that's kind of fun. That word we often hear is used as like, oh man, this little kid had a lot of moxie or that young woman had a lot of moxie. Well, sometimes I would suggest maybe we use it and don't exactly know what we mean by that. Well, I'm going to give us a working definition. Moxie means this, force of character, determination, or nerve. Force of character, determination, or nerve. And I would suggest at this stage of the game, Paul is representing moxie. Like if there's ever somebody that has a force of character, determination, or nerve, his character is on full display. His determination is without resolve and nerve is unquestionable at this season of his life. There's kind of not that kind of one foot in anymore, one foot out. Like this is a fully sold out man of God. And if you think about it, isn't that what we want for our lives? Not kind of a a partial commitment, but somebody that's secure in who they are and what they're called to do. It's a confidence, but it's not a self-confidence. It's a God confidence because he knows who's driving the ship or who's driving the bicycle. If you're here a couple weeks ago, you get the idea. The idea is Paul is someone living with moxie, and that's my prayer and hope for us is being a people full of moxie. Let me pray before we explore this fun text. Dear Lord, we come before you now and just excited to see what you're going to teach us through this section of scripture. I love how faithful you are on that. As we open your word, as we take time to walk through the things that you've written to us in this love letter, God, there's so much that we can draw from that. I ask that your spirit would be moving and working here this morning, that you'd meet people exactly where they're at through this text. In Jesus Christ's name I pray. Amen. So chapter 26, verse 12, last week, John started working through the first half of this chapter. You might remember a little bit of the background of what's going on. Basically, Paul has been now sitting in prison for over two years, and they keep trying to figure out what in the world to do with Paul. You might remember his request. Basically, Paul requested, instead of dealing with these lower courts, he made the request to be brought before Caesar, which was the option or freedom for every Roman citizen to go before the Caesar or the ruler of the entire land, kind of our supreme court, if you will, and asking to go and have them determine the case. 
Well, while he's waiting for his all-expense-paid trip to Rome, he's there stuck in Caesarea, still in prison. And in that time period, the governor, Festus, remember the gross name, Festus is still there. He's waiting to decide when to send him all that stuff. Well, while he's waiting, he has a visitor by the name of King Agrippa who shows up in town with his uh, wife slash sister, creepy, I know, uh, named Bernice. And uh, they show up in town. And while they're there visiting... Festus asked Agrippa to give his two cents or opinion on Paul's situation. Are you tracking with me? So he wants to hear what kind of Paul's case is and see what Agrippa thinks of the situation. Well, he tells Paul to come into the room where they're all gathered. The room that they're gathered in has all these key officials and leaders of the kind of known world of that time, kind of the most prominent people possible all in one space kind of a, if you're ever thinking of a room that's like set up for intimidation this was it key leaders key people of the city all dressed up formally and in walks paul now we don't know exactly what paul looked like but there's a, a description of him written by a second century church leader that described him as a man of middling size and his hair was scanty and his legs were a little crooked and his knees were far apart, he had large eyes, and his eyebrows met, and his nose was somewhat long. So basically, a short, bald, big nose, big eyes, uh, unibrow, and bow legs. So this is Paul, if you will. And if, you, if you're like me and you're kind of a visual learner, who is it that kind of comes to mind when you think of that? I couldn't help but thinking of Danny DeVito. Like, like, this is the picture I have of Paul, and we don't know exactly if this is an accurate portrayal, but this is the kind of the description that 2 Corinthians 10, 10 says, says, for they say, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak. So Paul's not necessarily a looker, if you will, but he shows up on the scene, and you imagine after two years sitting in prison, probably got a little bit of a scent to him, don't you think? A little bit of an odor. He's probably not well kept, not well shaven. He's showing up in this prestigious arena, all eyes on him. Imagine the pressure, the intensity of the moment, but there's no sign of anything other than moxie. He, he's there with full confidence to share, and he starts telling his story. He's not, notice he, he, in the text, he doesn't, doesn't go into defending himself, starts telling his story, First, how he used to be a, a committed to Judaism like none other, even to the point of persecuting other uh, followers of Jesus, followers of the way. And here it begins in verse 12, where he starts telling about the turning point in his life, a pretty dramatic turning point you're maybe familiar, familiar with. Verse 12, in this connection, I journeyed to Damascus. So in his pursuit of persecuting Jewish believers, says, with the authority and commission of the chief priests. Verse 13, at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people 
from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins in a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Little explanation of this section. You might be reading that, and if you've been a part of our Acts series for a while, you might be saying to yourself, man, that sure does sound familiar. Seems like we've, we've read that story, that account before. You've heard it, and you're, you're right in that. You actually have. Chapter 9 and 22 give the same overview of the exact same experience. Well, here's the first thing I wanted to point out is when someone's living with moxie, if you will, they never get tired of telling their story of redemption. It never gets old to them. Doesn't matter. This is now 25 years after the incident and Paul still relaying it verbatim how it played itself out. It never gets old. He's telling his story. And Paul doesn't have a, a boring story, you would say. It wasn't because someone sat down with him at a coffee shop and walked him through the four spiritual laws. It wasn't because he read a purpose-driven life. Literally, he had an encounter with Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. Encounter with God in the flesh. Pretty awesome experience here. And in that interaction, he's asked a question. Do you notice it there in the text? He's asked a question that I imagine shook him to the core. Why are you persecuting me? In other words, that sinking feeling that Paul must have come to, Saul at the time, must have come to, oh shoot, I've been pursuing the wrong people. I've been chasing down followers of Jesus and Jesus is in fact Lord. Pretty sinking feeling, I imagine. If you think about that reality, anybody on this planet that's rejected Jesus Christ will someday have that same aha moment. Whoa, I got this wrong. Someday every single knee will bow and confess that, whoa, Jesus Christ was Lord pretty desperate point. In fact, this is a good news for Paul because he acknowledged it before his death. In this place, he has this interaction and every single one of these accounts has a few different details that other ones don't. He uses the expression here that Jesus said, it said Jesus asked him this other question or made this statement. He says, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. Well, it sounds like an expression from junior high or something, but no, let me give a little explanation of what he's saying there. An expression that he has there, he's saying basically you're fighting a losing battle. What a goad was, a goad was actually a tool used by a cattle herder. You can see a picture of one here. Kind of basically what they put on the end of a long stick. And when a goat or oxen or cattle or whatever would get out of line, it would poke it and it would get back in order. Basically, he's saying the same nonsense of trying to oppose what an oxen does and getting poked. Why would you do that? Eventually, you're going to come in line. But just kind of paralleling that to our own life, we have a dog uh, named Bailey. I think I've shown pictures of her uh, before. She's a cockapoo. You have to be pretty secure in your masculinity to own one. We'll go and uh, take this dog for a walk. I mean, I imagine if anybody, other dog owners, you do that too, uh, because I love animals. And, uh, and so because I love animals, we'll take the dog on, on a walk. I'm getting that in there. And uh, put it on a leash. We don't have the cool ones that are kind of spread out. We've just got the traditional one that's maybe uh, just with a collar. And as you're walking, our dog does the weirdest thing. I don't know if yours does this. We're walking... The whole entire walk, it's constantly straining the other direction, even so that when it's walking, it's going, and 
I'll sit down because I love animals next to my dog and I'll explain to it. I'll, I'll explain, Bailey, listen, this will go so much easier for you if you just go the direction that we're all going. We're headed this way. If you stop tugging, it's gonna be so much easier for you, dear Bailey. See how tender that moment is? Our dog doesn't seem to get it. Even after the pep talk, it's right back to tugging away. The same idea as what Jesus is explaining to Saul in this moment. He's saying, listen, you can keep tugging the other direction, but guess what the outcome is? A miserable life, and at some point, you're finally going to come in line and acknowledge me at Lord as Lord, whether it's in this lifetime or after you breathe your last breath. He points to that amazing opportunity, and Paul, thankfully embraces Jesus, acknowledges him, even in these moments, as Lord. Then I find it interesting, another thing that's not in the other accounts here, the other accounts, is it also uh, is, is really clear, Jesus says, for I have appeared to you for this purpose. In other words, he explains to Paul why he appeared to him. He explains to him, I appeared to you so that you could live a nice, comfortable Christian life trying to be a really good person as best as you can, attending all kinds of church events, and then sitting back and ultimately waiting for heaven. It's going to be great, Paul. Is that what he says? Is that what you're about? No, that's not at all what he says. He says, I've, I've, I've rescued you for a purpose because you're going to be my servant is servant sound like a comfortable halfway in kind of position? No. And he said, you're going to be my witness. In other words, you're not going to be a mute follower of me. You're going to speak about me to the world around you. That's what every single person that embraces Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior is invited to a life of purpose and meaning, which comes on the end of being a witness and talking about him. He explains very specifically that in that he's going to be bringing people from blindness to seeing truth, ultimately focusing on Gentiles. That's going to be the audience that he's going to be focusing on with the end goal. You see it there in, in the text for people to receive forgiveness of sins through faith in Jesus. That's the ultimate end goal. That's the result of his witness. Kind of cool to think that our testimony and our story has the potential to have that end results, that blinders can come off. And here's the thing to understand, when we're sharing our testimony, that sometimes people are like, you know, my testimony is kind of boring. Back when I was in, uh, in uh, seventh grade, I was at camp, and after the speaker, by the bonfire, I prayed, and that's it. And here's the important thing to understand. Your part of the story isn't the exciting part. Your part isn't the interesting part. Your part is the kind of eh, take it or leave it part. The part that's interesting in your testimony has nothing to do with you and everything to do with him. The God of the universe, the creator of all of this, literally came down in the form of a baby, lived amongst us the perfect life, and then died on a cruel Roman cross by people that he allowed to put him there. At the same moment he's putting oxygen in their lungs, they're hanging him on a cross that he's dying on for our sins as a sacrifice for us. That's the exciting part of your testimony. Not whether or not you were bad before or good now. And none of that really matters. It all has to do with Jesus Christ. He's the object of the testimony. Does that make sense? 
all of a sudden that brings purpose and meaning to our descriptions of what happened to us and the potential end goal of forgiveness of sins. Well, here God gives them exactly the words to speak. Verse 19 says this, Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. In other words, I did exactly what I was told. Verse 20, continuing, But declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had to, the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. We'll stop there for a moment. If you think about this, when you're reading these accounts, you might be tempted to think in your mind, man, Paul sure has himself in a predicament. Two and a half years or two plus years in prison, he's standing before all these officials, he's having to give an account. What a bummer for Paul. But here's a flip side of seeing it. The truth is, he's exactly where God has him for exactly the time as this. In fact, it was even predicted by Jesus that this would happen. You say, where was it predicted? Take a look at Luke chapter 21, describing what would come for believers. You will be brought before kings and governors. Who is Paul before right now? King and a governor, yeah. And for my name's sake, this will be your opportunity to bear witness. Isn't that cool? And isn't that awesome to think, what is Paul doing right now? Is he going into a defense of why, why he's innocent and not uh, all the facts and all that? Or is, is he telling the story of what happened in his life? He's telling the, the testimony. He's a witness to Jesus Christ and what he's done in his life. It's a pretty awesome display of that. And I love that continues in Luke 21, describes that when we're doing that, it says, settle it therefore in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. So in this moment that he's choosing to speak up, God's giving him exactly what to say. Exactly the words to say. John spoke about that a couple weeks ago. The perfect words for the situation. In this, what is he calling them to? He's saying, all I did was follow the vision that was given and I called people to repent and turn to God. Guess what message we still have today, a couple thousand years later, still the exact same message, repent. The word repent in the original Greek literally just means to turn and go the opposite direction. That's literally all, all it means. It says, turn and go the opposite direction from where you're going towards where God is. He invites them to that. That's part of his call. And then he says, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. Here's the reality that sometimes we like to kind of escape. That repentance means a change in behavior. There's, there's a different way that you live once you've repented. When you're heading the opposite direction of what you used to go, all of a sudden things look very different in the way that you live, you act, you interact, how you respond to life circumstances. Those are all displays of your repentance. He points to that, he acknowledges that. I like that he also gives credit of how God has protected him. To this day, I've had the help that comes from God. In other words, God's protected him through all of these adventures. If there's ever anybody that knows a little something about God's rescue in his life, Paul knew it. 
Look at this little overview real quickly. Chapter 14, rescued from being stoned. Chapter 16, rescued from being thrown in prison. Chapter 17, attacked in Thessalonica, then also in Berea, rescued from that. Chapter 18, attacked in Corinth. Chapter 19, riot in Ephesus he was rescued from. Chapter 21, attacked by the, in the Jewish temple, uh, almost killed there. Chapter 22 and 25, assassination plots foiled. All of these things building up his resume of like, man, I'm pretty much untouchable. You can beat me up. You can, you can do whatever, but I have God's hand of protection on me. And moving towards kind of the conclusion, I love his conclusion, is that all I've been doing is just explaining to people what the prophets and Moses had already talked about. The Old Testament, it's not a separate thing that we're doing here with the New Testament. It's literally the fulfillment of that. Gotten to know a guy over the last couple of years at the, the gym that I go to. His name's Jeremy, and we, I think I've mentioned him here, him here before. We joke about him being the, the, uh, the mayor of 24 Fitness because he knows everybody, and he likes to brag about that, and, uh, and I tease him about it. But anyway, in our conversation this last week, he said, hey, Scott, I, I have a book to pass on to you. He's a Jewish guy, and, uh, and I was like, interesting. What, what book? He's like, it's, it's, it's a book about the gospel of John. I was like, uh, why don't you keep that book and read it? That'd be great. And so but I was just trying to be nice. And so, oh man, I'd love to, love to see it. And I, I said, did you get a chance to look at that? He's like, yeah, I spent a little time with it. I said, the cool thing that you'll find in the study of that, I said, is man, that Jesus perfectly meets all the description of them in your Bible, in the Old Testament. And he's like, oh yeah, smiles, nods. And uh, later, later on, I was like, can I send you a, a, a short passage just for you to read from your Bible to read that perfectly describes Jesus? And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, Facebook Messenger this week, I sent him a, a little note. Actually, he invited me to car show. Uh, then I sent him a note back and said, hey, here's a, attach the link for Isaiah 53. I said, man, why don't you, why don't you read this? He's like, is it a lot to read? And, uh, and I was like, no, it's just 12 verses. So I, a, anyway, I'm anxious to see, I'm anxious to see how this is gonna go because literally the Bible speaks so perfectly of the coming Messiah. He's asking, he's inviting these people, the audience that were very familiar with the, the Old Testament, just read your Bibles and then connect present day events with what was prophesied about Jesus. And here he's pointing to that. And you look at that in response and what we get sometimes as well. Look at verse 24, how Festus responds. And as he is saying these things in his defense, Festus, gross, said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. Love that interaction there. I kind of picture this uh, with Festus, probably a, a wine goblet for sure in his hand there. He's like, you're out of your mind, you know? Like a, and Paul, I love that his response isn't argumentative. Notice that he's not debating with them. So often we feel like when we have someone that doesn't believe what we do, that we have to convince them or argue with them and somehow win an argument. And how many of you have a story you're like, man, this guy really didn't believe and I argued with him until he finally accepted Jesus. It was awesome. Like that, that story is not really out there. And so, so Paul doesn't fall prey to that either. And instead, he calmly responds to him. He uses terms like excellent Festus. I, I probably was hard for him to do that knowing that excellent Festus is the one that's kept him in prison all this time. But he uses that description and he goes to the description uh, of saying, listen, I'm not out of my mind. I'm speaking true 
and rational words. I love that description because we don't realize it, but the real world around us, 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So he's not impatient or angry. He's just moving the conversation. And you notice he does something unique there. He points to the fact that it's rational, that it's not crazy. And for us, here's the little reminder, what you believe in is not crazy. In fact, tell your neighbor right now, you're not crazy if you embrace Christ. You don't have to say that whole sentence, but you get, get the idea. But here's the, the reason I say that. The gospel is not subjective, but objective because it's a historical event. Every piece of the gospel, think about it for a moment. His, his birth, his life, his death on the cross, his resurrection, all have testimony of witness and validity based on facts that people have affirmed for generations after generations. It's not like any other courtroom scenario. What do you do? You're like, well, I wasn't there. Well, just because you weren't there doesn't mean you can't come to conclusions. You weigh the evidence. Based on the evidence, you come to a conclusion. Even though you weren't there, this is one of those things that we weigh the evidence and have come to the conclusion of truth. That's what he's pointing to. And if you think about it, like we can, still today, you could hop on a plane, go over to Israel, walk on the same streets that he walked on, interact, see the same things. You can point, go to all these specific sites. In fact, there's a group of uh, folks from our church that are literally flying out today going to Israel on an experience there. In fact, a fun story that moderately uh, relates a little bit to the message, but not really. But let me tell it to you anyway. So, um, our whole staff last week was at a conference, a uh, pastor's conference, and uh, we go to every fall. And we're, we're there, and uh, they had one of these booths out in the kind of courtyard. There's about 1,400 uh, uh, leaders at this thing, so pretty big thing. And they had a, a, a booth for going to Israel, tours to Israel. My wife and I have always kind of said, man, it'd be so awesome to go there at some point. So I stopped by the booth just to kind of hear what their spiel was or whatnot. But then in the conference, I heard them say, we're giving away one free trip, all expense paid trip uh, to Israel uh, for some lucky winner. Guess who that lucky winner is? This guy. So th this guy, so, so at this conference, th here's the email says, we also wanna congratulate Scott Kegel from Agora Bible Fellowship for winning a trip to Israel from GTI Tours. Have a wonderful time in the Holy Land. How cool is that? So, uh, so uh, the last thing I won was a rubber basketball in eighth grade. And so this was a, a little step up from that. And so uh, we're pretty jazzed about that. But thinking about that, we're just thinking about that trip. We're literally going to be seeing the sights, going to all these places. It, we're not crazy. We're not crazy. We're going and seeing the life that he lived, seeing the places that he went. For those of us that are concerned about whether or not we're rational or not, we are. Continuing in verse 26. And Paul points to that with the king. He says, For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, Whether short or long time, I would... I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. 
Then the, king, then the king rose, and the governor and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. We'll stop there for a second and uh, give a, a little bit of explanation. The first thing you'll notice is Paul, instead of arguing with Festus, what does he do? He turns his attention to the king. He turns his attention because he saw something was going on with the king. The king has literally been the king over this region for 10 to 12 years now. So in other words, it wasn't new information that the king was hearing about Jesus Christ. Everybody knew about Jesus Christ. Everybody knew about his miracles. It was a, it's a small region. It's a small area. That's why, that's why he said this has not been done in a corner in other words, this hasn't been something suddenly behind closed doors. You've seen this. And I love this moment, if you think about it, to the ultimate moxie moment, when Paul should have been kind of afraid, kind of timid with his life on the line before the king, he puts the spotlight on the king and he goes for the jugular. Do you guys see it there in the text? He asks the king, he says, do you believe? I know that you believe. I love that. Do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. I love that. He calls them out. He says, you're very familiar with this. You've heard it all. You've seen it all pieced together. If you believe the prophets, then it's only just a moment of logic that it'll take for you to connect that Jesus perfectly fulfilled what was promised by the prophets. He puts, instead of him being on the stand, all of a sudden, the king is on the stand. And notice what the king chooses to do avoidance avoidance chooses sarcasm right he says do you expect in this short of a time i'm going to become a christian in other words you think me do you think i'm going to because of your explanation here bend a knee before almighty god and paul's like well i had hoped so i love that about paul he's like i hope not just you but the whole crew here i was hoping for a revival you know like he's hoping for a, an altar call there but instead it's a moment that's kind of kind of sad this is a crossroads where the king could have in that moment, and you imagine his heart was racing, his heart was beating. He could have embraced the Messiah for himself. But instead, what does he do? Sarcasm, and then chooses to actually leave. Chooses to walk away. So many people, that's their choice. Chooses to joke about it, chooses to walk away, instead of actually reflecting on this decision that has the potential to redirect your eternity. Here, in that case, Paul demonstrating moxie like none other, giving them the opportunity, but he and Festus and Bernice choose to walk away. And I love their little interaction. Doesn't seem like he's guilty to me. Seems like he's innocent. I love the redirect of blame too. If he wouldn't have chosen to go to Caesar, he could have been set free. Paul, if he heard that, he must have been like, are you kidding me? You had two and a half years you could have set me free. Don't play it off like it's my fault. But anyway, that's another topic. Here's the idea here is the moxie is what I would love us to walk away with is that if you're looking for any kind of a takeaway, wouldn't it be awesome if this people, I think on a given weekend, we're pushing around 500 people at this church, 500 people invaded the city of Calabasas, the city of Westlake, the city of Agora Hills, Thousand Oaks, Moore Park, Newberry Park. What if we invaded that with moxie and confidence of God's calling in our life and the testimony that he's given us to share. Man, 
the impact that we could have. We could come back next week and have awesome stories to share. What will we respond to this message with? Let me pray. God, I thank you for this testimony of Paul. And so often in this book, it's been things for us to emulate. Here's definitely a case of that, that we would have the kind of fervor and passion and resolve that isn't kind of swayed by the different tugs and appeals of this world, that isn't caught up in appearances or how we're going to necessarily come across, but the same as Paul that's driven by a passion and a heart for people that stems from walking with you. I know if I'm honest, God, before you, the times that I have the most fervor is when my relationship with you is in a good place. When I'm walking close to you, all of a sudden that passion meter goes up. I pray for that even this week for all of us, God, that we take the steps behind the scenes that creates a, a person and a character that just naturally overflows with testimony. I commit this to you. We know that we can't do any of it apart from your hand, your reach, from your spirit. In Jesus Christ's name I pray, amen. Just uh, quick reminders as you're leaving today. One, if you grab one of those compassion packets, you can uh, make sure you turn in that card before you leave because that's the only uh, copy of that for that specific child that they have. So you could do that. And then secondly, you might remember Josh was talking about those Halloween invites. What an awesome way to redeem kind of a broken holiday, right? So make sure you grab a stack of those to give out with your candy, not as a replacement for candy. Uh, be clear on that. Otherwise, if we can be praying for you about something specifically, we'll have volunteers here up the front. God bless you. Have a great week.